The Congressional Commission, tasked with figuring out how to reform DOD's decades-old planning and budgeting system, is out with its interim report. The panel says it's been mainly in listening mode so far, and we should expect a more comprehensive set of recommendations next spring. But the commission says DOD and Congress need to get started on at least some of the reforms right now because they'll take years to implement. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has been following the PPBE reform conversation. He joins me now with the latest. And the interim report looked as if they're not really ready to pull PPBE out by the roots, correct? Yeah, I think that's definitely true, at least for sure as, as at this interim stage, Tom, because they, as you said, they have been in listening mode up until this point. Not just listening, but a lot of study, too. They've engaged FFRDCs to help study the PPBE process as it stands now, what some of the potential problems are, as well as doing a lot of interviews, not just with folks inside DOD, but also, I think, critically on Capitol Hill, because this is one of those rare cases where, you know, this expert commission is being tasked with making uh, recommendations that are going to impact not just how an executive agency handles things internally, but the relationship between that executive agency and Congress. It, both things have to happen at the same time in order for any meaningful progress to be made here, which is one of the huge challenges in this process. And it's kind of funny in the sense that everyone affected, including members of Congress, feel that it needs reform. So it's not as if they were studying something cold to see if it needed reform. And everyone, I think, had kind of a sense of what the reforms would need to be, what areas such as year of execution, flexibility, the ability to reprogram money more easily at larger quantities, this kind of thing. And so it's not surprising. And yet here they are, you know, with the interim report saying, well, Let's get started. And those things you just mentioned, I mean, there are obviously a balance of equities there, right? I mean, DOD is always going to say, give us more flexibility in the year of execution. Give us more ability to do reprogramming. Congress, on the other hand, is very wary of giving up control, not just of where the dollars go, but the kinds of information it gets. And that's one of the very tricky balances that's going to have to be struck here. And I'll just offer one one example from the commission's interim report on one of the things that they need to get started on now, which is consolidating some of the program elements that are in the DOD budget every year. There are thousands and thousands of thousands that have accreted over time into the DOD budget. One of my favorite factoids that I've I've heard about the, through, throughout this entire process is each page of the DOD budget represents about $30 million in spending. So there's a lot of pages in the thing. That's because there are so many discrete line items. And once money is appropriated into one of those line items, they are very, very difficult to change because they are so small. They are so discrete. You need to do a reprogramming for each one. You only have a certain threshold below which you can do that reprogramming internally before you have to go to Capitol Hill to get permission to do that. So one of the recommendations, and it's not at all surprising because we've heard the same thing from outside groups for years, is start consolidating those program elements, those thousands of program elements, into broader portfolio areas within which DOD would have more ability to move money around in the year of execution. Now, the trade-off that is going to have to happen with that, I think the, the commission recognizes, is that Congress is going to need to have more information about DOD spending plans and how it is executing those funds in the year of execution. That does not work with the way DOD submits the budget every year right now, which is all at once on paper in February or March of every year along with the rest of the president's budget. And then really nothing gets transmitted to Congress for the rest of the year. That's a huge problem because one of the reasons it's a problem is 
that information the day it hits Capitol Hill is already very, very stale because that planning process has taken the preceding two years to draw up all those individual pieces of paper where they before they land with a thud up there on Capitol Hill. So one of the one of the really key things the commission's looking at here is more ongoing electronic sharing of budget information in real time in the year of execution so that you're not just looking at a paper document that's generated uh, based on information that came from a year or two earlier. Yeah, I'm chuckling thinking of the time Jimmy Carter would take the budget up to the upstairs in the White House and purport to try to read the darn thing with a sharp pencil. And I think that lasted about a month before he realized it's not possible for anyone to, least of all the president, to read it all. And you have reported a lot about the color of money and the need to sort all of that out. That's actually a different consolidation issue. The, the, the consolidation issue I was just talking about was the individual program elements that describe different portions of the DOD budget, different programs. For example, there was a time in which there was a single line item for all Navy shipbuilding back in the day when PPBE was first created, that obviously no longer exists. There are separate line items for each individual component of each individual ship class. And at some point, that just becomes unmanageable. And I think the commission recognizes that. So maybe hulls here propulsion here and weapon systems there. Sure. I mean, that's that's one potential reasonable example. But the commission says that process is going to take years all by itself because it needs to be done thoughtfully in kind of year-by-year increments to get congressional buy-in um, to make sure that Congress is going to be willing to appropriate dollars in that way. Because DOD can propose consolidated line items all at once. In the At the end of the day, Congress is free to break it all back open again and put it back in the old format. And in fact, that is exactly what has happened happened in some of the past few years. The Navy and Air Force in particular tried just consolidating some things on their own, submitting a budget with those consolidated line items without talking to Congress first, just to see if it would if it would fly. Sure. Well, guess what? It didn't fly, and Congress and I, broke them back apart. Well, I suspect probably contractors got a hold of that notion, and they probably had something to say in the other ear of Congress. That, that's that's entirely possible, too, and that's, that's another complaint I've heard from some outside experts about this process, is having those uh, individual discrete line items separated in the way that they are essentially means that a contractor's name is attached to each one of those line items without, you know, of of course, actually having them in black ink on there. That represents funding to probably one company because they're so discreet and so and and, and broken apart in in such a um, disparate way. But on the color of money, it does talk about that. Yeah. Yes. Again, separate issue. And that's not an area the commission's going into yet. They they did suggest that that's one area that they may go into in in, in the final report, which is not a surprise because one of the co-chairs of the commission is Ellen Lord, who kind of birthed some of the initial ideas around consolidating the colors of money in DOD, particularly around software development, which the, the department is now experimenting with. But they suggest, the commission suggests, one way they might go in this is you organize those colors of money based on the organization that's executing them. So, for example, a program executive office that's using almost all of its money to acquire things, ships, let's say, um, just have them use only procurement money. Everything that they do would be procurement money. They don't execute RDT and E money. They don't execute. Um, they don't execute any other color of money anymore. It would just be procurement. And then you would do similar things for other kinds of organizations. An R and D organization, for example, might only get RDT and E money, and, and, and that that could go a long way towards solving the problem because there is an enormous amount of time spent in the department with lawyers figuring out what kind of money you can use for what thing, and sometimes the color of money that 
that you need for a thing just isn't available in the budget in the year of execution, and you're out of luck until next year. All right, so lots of things that they can do long-term, a number of suggestions short-term. What happens next for this whole effort? And by the way, we should also note again, nowhere does it say, let's get rid of PPBE. I I think that's really important, Tom. And and I think that will disappoint some of the people who think the system needs to be completely ripped out, root and branch. I don't think they're going there. We heard explicitly from the co-chairs, Ellen Lord and Bob Hale, uh, earlier this week at a media roundtable, that they've really concluded that there are some very strong aspects to PPBE that should not go away. As Ellen Lord said, we are not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. That said, I think there are substantial reforms that we'll see in the final report, but it's not going to be a completely new system. As for what's next, as we said, they're out of listening mode at this point. Kind of the research phase is done. I think there's going to be some more engagement with stakeholders, as they say, to see whether some of the things that they have not yet recommended are actually going to make sense. Because in the end, I think they want an executable report. And again, it's got to be executable, not just by the department. It's fairly easy for Congress to order the department to do things. But in this case, Congress Congress is going to have to make reforms itself at the same time it's telling the department to do things. By the way, the ghost of Robert McNamara will not ever disappear from that building, Never. will it? All right. Federal News Network's Jared Serbo, thanks so much. You bet. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joins Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this 
you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about 
integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.